CIUT 89.5 Toronto. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Hi, I'm Daniel Garber from CIUT Friday Morning. Hi, this is Donna G from The More the Merrier. Hi, I'm Mark Tara from Rainbow Country and together we are Team CIUT bringing you coverage of TIFF 2020. How are you? Good evening and welcome. It's the opening night. Tonight we thank you. I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you all for holy shit, there's a lot of y'all. Um, I'm very proud to be here tonight and I'm so grateful that you joined us. I'll stop till you get enough. Hello Toronto! Toronto, the best of them all. If you ever think about the best place to watch things, it's different. I want to thank Toronto because you have always honored, celebrated, exalted female directors. The warmth and the love that you gave me is something I will never forget in my life. It's so exciting to be here at Toronto in this gorgeous theater. This is just like Christmas Day. Thanks to you for coming. This is truly a very special evening for me. This is why we do what we do, you know. I love this festival and it's an honor to be back. Behind me is what we call society, what we see in our everyday and what we have on screen. Let's keep on doing movies about us. We're making pictures about what's happening today in society. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Good morning, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to this special TIFF 2020 broadcast. This is Donna G, and joining me for the special coverage are Daniel Garber. You can hear his segment, Daniel Garber at the Movies, every Friday on the show, simply called CIUT Friday Morning. You can also find him at culturalmining.com. And he has the number one LGBT podcast. It's Mark Tara, producer and host of the syndicated radio show, Rainbow Country. And I'm Donna G, host of The More the Merrier, Wednesday mornings, 1 a.m. to 2 a.m., film, theater, and arts at large coverage. Today, Mark Tara will have an interview for you from the film Good Joe Bell, which stars Mark Wahlberg. Like Mark, I'll also have a TIFF 2020 interview for you. This one is with short film director Tiffany Xiong about her film Sing Me a Lullaby. And Daniel Garber will be flashing back to TIFF of the past with an interview about the film Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Sounds juicy. My name is Charles Officer and I'm the writer and director of Invisible Essence, The Little Prince on CIUT 89.5 FM. Coming up, 
Mark chats with Reed Miller, who stars alongside Mark Wahlberg and Connie Britton in the new powerful movie Good Joe Bell. Reed Miller, hi, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Thank you for having me here. You're more than welcome. Welcome on board. I always say this, but thank you for being here to have your voice, your story be heard by the LGBT community and beyond. So thank you, Reed Miller. Let's start here. Good Joe Bell. You star in this new film. You play Jaden Bell. You star alongside uh, Mark Wahlberg, who plays your dad, Joe Bell, and Connie Britton, who plays your mom, Lola Bell. Reed Miller, talk to me about this film. What's this film, Good Joe Bell? What's this film about? Well, um, you know, this film, um, I think at the heart, is about a dad learning to essentially to become an ally um, to the LGBTQ community, to um, while also accepting the part he played in um, the in the suicide of of his son, um, and it's also a story about love and about a father and a son who are desperately trying to understand one another. Um, it is just as much a story of, of understanding for Joe as it is for Jaden, you know, just for both of them trying their, their best to, to understand and, and, and to fully accept one another. I'm personally now hearing about this, this incident, I believe it happened in 2013. Yeah. For yourself, when did you first become aware of this? So, you know, at the time, when when that did happen, when all of these events happened, um, I was I what I was thirteen. Um, so I, I actually I didn't hear about it until I got the initial audition, um, and I, I started doing research, and I was very 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 surprised that I hadn't heard about it until now, um, which is really one of the reasons I was so passionate about doing the film was it made me sad that something so important and relevant and sad was in a way sort of lost in the past. You know, a lot of people hadn't heard about it, myself included. So it, it was, you know, an honor for me to have the privilege to bring this story to light and to, to show people like, this is what's going on. And we, we all need to, you know, we need to have more empathy and, and work together. Yeah. Well said. Jaden Bell was a young gay man. He was bullied. And unfortunately, in, in 2013, he committed suicide. For yourself, Reed Miller, as an actor, a young actor, were you nervous? Were you apprehensive about taking on a role, such a challenging role, essentially? Were you nervous about about tackling this role? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I wouldn't say I was apprehensive, but I would definitely say I was nervous because, you know, I definitely, there's a, a huge responsibility when you are taking on a role like this. Um, and for me, I had never taken on a role like this. That was so heavy and, and something that really happened. Um, I had never done a true story. And for me, it was like, okay, when accepting the role, when agreeing to do the project, you know, my biggest goal was to ascent was just was to tell Jaden's story as honestly and truthfully as I could. Um, so for me, I think my passion for Jaden as a person, for his story, kind of over help me overcome my nervousness. Cause initially, of course I was nervous. I think anyone would be um, just with the amount of pressure that comes with it and the responsibility. But I was very lucky to have an incredibly supportive director. Mark Wahlberg was incredibly supportive. Everyone on the project was incredibly supportive. And that also allowed me to overcome my sort of initial anxiety and really allow me to dive headfirst um, into Jaden. How did you prepare to tackle such a heavy role? <sighs> that, yeah, <laughs> it, you know, study, you know what I mean? Just study, just talking to his family. Um, so you talking. did meet some of his family members. I did. I did. I, uh, I met, uh, I met his mother, Lola Bell. Um, and I met, um, his brother, um, Joseph Bell. And, um, you know, that was a real, almost, it was very eye-opening. It was very intense because hearing them talk about it, hearing them talk about Jaden um, was really, really, that, that was the last sort of um, thing that I needed to really help me understand and, and to really give me the confidence to play the role. Um, because it's one thing to read a script and to see the writer's interpretation of, of, of him, but to actually hear about him from the source, from his own mother, from his brother, from the people that knew him the best, um, that was really, that was really, really um, insightful. And in a way, you know, I could go in, into all this detail about you know, my process and, you know, whatever, but really you can't really prepare for something like that. It's like, I did the best that I could and, and, and understanding him and, 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 and understanding who he really was behind closed doors. But it wasn't until, you know, we actually stepped onto set and I was wearing his, his clothes and I, I had his iPod um, that had all the songs on it and listening to his songs and what those songs meant really that that really just put it into perspective for me into understanding who he was and what he wanted because a lot of the music for instance he would listen to was very empowering music it was music about being yourself it was um madonna beyonce lady gaga it was all music that was like you be you need to be who you are regardless of what anyone else thinks and that was also very eye-opening because Jaden in real life was very, was very, very confident 
um, person. He was not afraid to say who he was and what he wanted. And that is incredibly brave, especially the, um, when taking into consideration um, who he was surrounded by, like at school and some of the, the things that happened to him. The fact that even then he didn't waver what he believed. Um, I mean, that was inspirational just to me. And the fact that he could do that and have that strength um, and learning all of this really helped me um, play him as best as I could. You were just mentioning about, did you actually have his actual iPod? I did. I did. You were mentioning about that and talking about the music. And one of the scenes in the film is uh, yourself and and <laughs> Mark Wahlberg on the, the road yeah. uh, singing Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that scene so much. Mm. It's, I have such fond memories of it because... Um, Born This Way. Yes, yes. And it's such a, and it's such an important song. It's an important song in general, but just so important to the movie and to who Jane was because and that's how he felt. Like he, he wasn't going to hide from who he knew he was. And, you know, that scene, though, yes, so it's funny and it's, it's very sweet. And it's a, it's, a, it's a bonding moment between the two of them. But what I love most about that scene and why this, I think the song is so important is it has a lot of um, layers to it in the context that go a lot deeper than than maybe some people will will notice because you know for Jaden when he's singing that song yeah he's kind of doing it to you know mess with his dad but it's that's him expressing who he is and for Joe when he chimes in and sings too that's that's him even in the smallest way like accepting who Jaden was. And, and it, it's such a, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it is just such, it's a, it's a nice moment of understanding between the two. Yeah. What was it like acting across uh, Mark Wahlberg? <laughs> it was, Mr. Marky um, Mark himself. I know, Marky Mark <laughs> and the Funky Bunch. Oh mm -hmm. man, it was, it was amazing. I mean, honestly, he, he is such a good person person he's a great guy he's so nice and just all around an accepting person and very welcoming and he didn't what, what I loved was you know I I'm you know I'm 20 years old I I look like I'm fit I look like a kid and it was so nice to feel like I wasn't treated like that you know I was treated as an equal and you know Mark was just such a, a, a welcoming person. You know, when we would be doing these heavy, intense scenes, he would just always have my back. And, you know, that was really important, I think. And, 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 and you know, just both of us having that disconnection, this very father-son connection. Like the first time I met him and we read together for, I, I went to his house to audition. Um, we, we, we left the room and me and him went into the kitchen and he was like, you know, you really, you feel like my son. Like it felt like I was talking to my son and I felt the same way. Like I felt like I was talking to my dad and it was, I think it was in that moment that I knew we had the, the right connection. Um, and it was really, you know, I hope the producers see that too and they give me the job. Um, but you know, Mark was great. I learned a lot from him. 
and he is a great mentor and just a, a great friend. You were mentioning earlier, you were saying that that scene with Mark on the road singing Lady Gaga was one of your favorite scenes. I've seen the film, great film, made me cry for one thing. <laughs> Reed Miller, thank you for that. Of, uh, <laughs> of course. But one of my favorite scenes, and I guess it was the Halloween scene because you guys were in costume. Yes. In the alleyway, because I could relate. <laughs> yeah, that's such a, again, I love that scene too. And, you know, that scene was, um, it was, was it fun a, to make? It was, scene? it it was so much fun because it was like the outfit that I wore. Was it Ziggy um, Stardust? Yes, it was. It was Ziggy Stardust. And it was, it was, it was custom tailored to fit me. Like mm -hmm. it was made for me. So, and I got to keep it. I took it home. Great. Um, so I have it in my closet and it's, it's so great because I had so much fun. You know, it's like the, the cast is so, had such great chemistry, you know, um, and the crew was also supportive that we all felt we were really, really able to just play. And uh, especially, you know, um, like just, just if for me being able to, to open up and be vulnerable um you know again everyone was so supportive and just willing to do whatever and it, it, i think because of that we were able to get some really great gems and some just some great moments like mm -hmm. like in the halloween scene yeah so you're starring in good joe bell but you've also starred in a number of tv shows including right. criminal minds on cbs the fosters on abc's freeform uh, training Day on CBS. How did you get into acting in the first place? So for me, um, I started acting when I was 13. That's sort of when I started uh, the journey, as some people would say. Um, I was a very, this is actually in, in some of the many ways I relate to Jaden. You know, I grew up in a small sports centric town and i i was a very artistic um very much not sports oriented person and because of that i was bullied and a lot of people didn't really take the time to understand me um but i was very lucky to have an incredibly supportive family like my parents loved me for who i am and and that they knew that i was different but they never they never let that um affect our relationship. They were incredibly supportive. And um, there was essentially this, this acting showcase type of thing where they, they travel to smaller towns and, you know, people can audition and do monologues. And, you know, so I, I my mom um, thought it was a good idea for me to try, to try out, to audition. Uh, and I had never auditioned for anything in my entire life. Um, and I'm also a very anxious person. Um, and so I went to the audition and it was my turn and I was reading a monologue and someone's phone and the audience went off and I just started crying. <laughs> I just started crying because uh, I was embarrassed. Like I, I had been stopped in the middle of my monologue and started crying. I, I like, didn't take the pressure. Um, but at the end, when everyone had auditioned, the, um, 
the owner, her name was Kim Meyer. She um, took me and my, my family aside and was like, you know, we want him to go to the next round. You know, he, he's got something. And I, I didn't see it. Um, I, you know, again, I was a very, I was still trying to figure it out, um, figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, but I, I did that and I kept going and I, I did the showcase and I, I got my first agent and manager and it just was sort of up and up from there. And, you know, it, it was, it's, it's been a long, hard process of just working, working, working and, and working hard. And, you know, but it's, you know, I'm finally getting to do the things I've always wanted to do. And, you know, getting to do this film has, has been a dream come true. You know, it is such an important piece that I think a lot of people are going to be affected by. So you are, you're an actor, you're a, a writer, mm-hmm. a director, at such a young age, you've accomplished all these things, but you're also but you're also a skilled martial artist. You're into karate, taekwondo, XMA, Muay Thai. You got time for all that? <laughs> it, you know, I uh, early early on in my life, um, and still now, but I, I I don't have as much time for it. Martial arts was a real staple. Um, in my life. It really kept me grounded. Um, so when I was 12, 13, um, I started taking um, Shodin Judo classes. Um, and, um, you know, that really gave me a great outlet. Um, and I just started studying, studying different martial arts, studying their philosophies, studying what it meant. Um, and I, I took um, Shaolin Kung Fu, I, I took Muay Thai, Judo, um, uh, and I also did like just basic wrestling cause my dad was a wrestler, uh, when he was younger and, you know, martial arts is so important to me. It's, it's such a, it really kept me grounded and still keeps me grounded from what I've learned from it. And it's just, it, it means more to me than just an activity. Like it's just a very important thing to me. And, you know, that's why in the future I want to start, I would love to do, more action-based roles and more intense roles. You know, I, I wrote and directed and starred in a, a, a micro feature called Jaeger and uh, it was an action film. And I, I, I wrote it uh, like a classic 80s action movie because I love those movies. And um, I was very lucky to be able to get that made with the small budget that I had and for it to turn out how it did. And, you know, I'm just, I, I hope every day that I'm going to be able to start doing more roles like that um, but, but not just roles like that, Ro- like films that are important, you know, like, like good Joe Bell. Like I, I want to be able to do both and, you know, do a, a really cool action movie, but on the other hand, have a film that maybe changes the way someone views life or approaches other people. Um, you know, I want to be able to do both is definitely, um, the goal. Most challenging part about making good Joe Bell? <sighs> that is a that's a very good question. Um, you know, I think the hardest thing um, for me was realizing just how much alike me and Jaden are. Um, that was it was hard 
and when I say hard, I, I don't, I don't mean it. Um, I don't mean it in a negative way at all. I just mean, I think for me, the film kind of made me realize how depressed I was. Um, and how I had a lot of things I, I needed to just, I needed to work out. Um, and specifically, I don't, um, do you, do you remember the scene, um, the phone scene where I'm calling my friends? Yes. That scene in particular was so hard mm. because of how easy it was to slip into that place. Mm. And it was a real eye opener that I needed to, I needed to, you know, take some better care of my 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 emotional health and to actually like open up and talk to my my mom and my dad about some of these things that I I struggle with and you know that's that's another great thing about Good Joe Bell is it in a way I think helped me as a person and helped me grow emotionally and to to realize how important um, keeping track and 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 just taking care of one's mental health is because I think it is easy in the, in the hustle of every day to lose track of that. Best part about making good Joe Bell. Best part about making good Joe Bell was just working with who I worked with, you know, like getting to work with, with Mark Wahlberg and, and with Ronaldo, uh, Marcus Green and, and Jake Gyllenhaal and all these people, uh, Daniela, um, and, and, and Riva, like they were just such an incredible team to make this project with. And the fact that I got to do not only do such an important film, but do it with these people who just cared so much about it and about me. Um, that's definitely the best part. Mm. Well said, well said, Reed Miller. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the show and great film thank you so much that means so much to hear and thank you for having me on it was an, it was a pleasure this is city councilor Kristen Wong Tam and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM Hi, this is Donna G, sharing an interview with you that I did with director Tiffany Xiang. Uh, Tiffany is a director of Sing Me a Lullaby, which screens in the Shortcuts program, program number five, at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. The film is about her mother, who was separated from her own mother when she was five years old. In the short, Tiffany goes back to Taiwan to trace her mother's past. The film starts and you're video recording your mom. How does she feel about the camera being there? She just puts up with me. My mother has always been just an incredible supporter of whatever I was doing or up to. And that was 2005. I was off the heels of third year film school and um, wanting to take off on a trip. And she knew that I wanted to start filming in Toronto. And so she just kind of tolerates it. She's like, you know, like that's what her, she's just like, 
feels like, okay, that's what I, I do. I just, you want to record, you just record. And I think after a while she just got used to it. So with that opening scene that you see of my mother, um, she had already been kind of just used to me being around with the camera. And I think that's always been growing up. Um, I've always been kind of behind the camera and just capturing things, whether it's for a film or a school project or just personal documentation. Um, I, I've been kind of that that family member always behind the camera. So she, she had gotten used to seeing that. However, this being a little bit different because um, it was more focused on her and I believe that was quite new. And, and what I found surprising when reviewing the footage a decade later was to read into the nuances around how, how, she, how her, what her body holds and, and seeing that pain as well, revisiting that. And that was, that was quite challenging. At the time in, in 2005, where the documentary begins, um, had your mother always cried about uh, not seeing her family for, at that time, 30 years? You know what? Um, she always held it in. And she just wouldn't talk much about it. And I always thought that it's because she didn't want to share it. But in fact, I realized she actually just didn't have much memory to share and that they were all quite fragmented. And I think leading up to um, my trip and leaving, um, I think the emotions were building up. In that, in, in that during the, the, that month or so, because we started having those conversations. Um, but in the past, when she did talk about it, there was always that silence. It was always the in between the sentences that I knew it was emotional for her to think about it. And, and in many ways for her to brush over it. Um, if you see, there's a cut actually between in that opening scene where she actually walks off camera. Yes, and, and that's my mom would usually just walk away um, into the bathroom, into her room, and then she'll come back calm and collective. Like that's that's kind of been um, that's just her also her demeanor. Um, this uh, family gathering was just different because it was um, also one of the last few uh, family dinners we would have before my trip, and it was again um, because I think we were already talking about it. Popo is an interesting figure in your film. Did you never think to ask Popo about your mother's past? Like my mother, I think that I had also adopted this uncomfortableness of asking and talking about difficult things. I didn't think I would be. Um, and also my language and communication with my grandmother Popo is very, was very limited back then. It, I was 21 and my Mandarin was, it pretty much sounded like a 10 year old at the time. It was, and she only spoke Mandarin. And so the conversation could only go so far anyhow, but also inherently it is something that is difficult and uncomfortable to bring up because you you don't want to upset your elders and you don't want to bring up anything that will be taboo and 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 then result into any turmoil and so I didn't think that I would feel that same way that my mother had always kind of insinuated and told me about um, but when I had the few um, on-camera interviews with my grandmother and talking about the past that did come over me that feel that uncomfortable feeling of not wanting to bring up 
the past and anything that would make my grandmother be upset or not want to talk about. Going back to the language for you, you had to learn Mandarin, which even though you said you spoke it at a, you know, the level of a 10-year-old, it's still, you know, learning a language as an adult. How did you improve your Mandarin? You know, it's actually from my relationship with my grandmother. It, I, I hate to say it, mom and dad, it wasn't because of you two. I know they're going to hate me for that. Um, it was spending time with my elders, my grandmother, and, and there was no option but to speak Chinese with them or try to, mm-hmm. and a lot of hand gestures and motioning for things and being around her and watching Chinese movies with her. And then on top of that, I think my Mandarin really improved when I was actually making my feature length documentary, The Apology, because one of the grandmothers in our film for The Apology um, is in rural China. And I had to, I spent over four or five years with their family filming and documenting them. And so again, my Sometimes I didn't have a translator with me and my Mandarin improved vastly with them. And so what was so interesting is that, and I say this a lot, that I I needed to make, I needed to make both films for them to exist. I needed to start Sing Me a Lullaby by by finding my own biological grandmother. And then I needed to make the apology and finish it um, to learn from these grandmothers, not just language, but also the space in which we hold these stories. And and how important it is to do that before it's too late. Yes. Uh, one of the scenes that I like uh, in the film is when you go to the door and you're, you say, um, I'm here to, 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 to see my mother's husband, or <laughs> you say something like that. In the, oh, yeah. The- oh, my God. It's the worst. It was so <laughs> awful. I couldn't remember the, the word. And I end up saying, and I only realized this um, only in the last couple of years because I, I refused to watch the footage because it was like no one wants to see their 21-year-old self, right? And so <laughs> it was only in the last uh, couple of years filming this and, and really putting, you know, wrapping up the movie, going through all the archive footage, I was like, did I full on just say I have a husband for you? Because <laughs> yes. that the word husband and letter is the it sounds exactly the same it's the different completely different words but they the the (laughs) the accent sounds so similar that I had said husband and not letter (laughs) so if you could imagine knocking on someone's door and being like hi you don't know me I'm from Toronto and I have a husband for you right They were one so of the many challenge. I know exactly. It was like this is a new delivery service I'm providing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you had such luck with with this film because you went at the right time for the database to be there in Taipei for you to find your grandmother. Yeah, no, you're you're right. Like if it was any time sooner, it would have been probably impossible. But I, I'd have to say. It, the generosity of people in Taipei and Taiwan, these the women and the staff that was there, they were so empathetic and confused. And I, <laughs> I think they just, they thought I was so amusing. You know, really, it, it was so amusing to them because my Chinese was so crap. I had these names on a napkin. Like I literally showed up with this napkin <laughs> with names on it. 
for them to 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 type in and it was so surreal for them that it, it they went on that journey with me to to make this work and you know when we were there um other news out outlets actually got a hold of this story so they also wanted to follow us along and they thought it was just again um back then in 2005 this is i found out this was right when google maps launched like they had just it just got invented google google earth google maps mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't have it on our phones yet like we didn't have smartphones but they had just like the actual um database and and the technology was invented in 2005 so it would be years later on where actually um google maps and and all that would be functional for our cell phones so uh 14 years of doing this this film why so long i thought for a very long time after 2007, 2008, um, I had thought I had done something wrong. I thought I had made a mistake by going to find my mother's past, essentially. And does the truth really set you free? Maybe ignorance is truly bliss. And what if the truth doesn't actually set you free? What if it brings you more pain than anything else? Would you go back? to wanting to not know and it isn't your hollywood ending you know it, it it's it's not like that in real life you know it there are so much complexities to that that for a young person you immediately just think shit i did something wrong what did i do that was a mistake look how sad mom is and i'm just gonna bury this and hopefully we could pretend that this never happened. Like there was, there was many years of, of feeling that guilt, um, but still documenting at the same time because I was filming The Apology. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, The Apology follows the lives of three former sex slaves during World War II, and they're all grandmothers now, still fighting for justice, still trying to come out to their own families. And it was through four years of production and filming and getting to know these elders that they taught me, no matter how painful, how difficult the truth is, we still need to know. And family still needs to know because it enriches and, and tells a full story of who we are as people and the value in which that holds. And I saw the impact of what that looked like for their own family that inspired me to finish Sing Me a Lullaby. And, and that's, that's how the journey restarted again. And I, I started filming more and more and, and becoming more comfortable with also looking at the footage as well, because it took a long time to, to, to look at the things that we had documented as well. It was, I do see how, because we started making the film and be, while we were wrapping it up and because more people started understanding her story, I did notice how comfortable she started becoming in terms of talking about it. And in this own way, this empowerment that like she owned, like with her story. If you could imagine growing up only with fragments of, of memories that you never really knew about. I remember growing up and she would, when she did talk about her past, she always said the same thing. She said, before I met Popo, 
all of my childhood memory was always in the dark. I don't remember daylight. I was brought to Popo's house and I never saw my family again. And so you, you, I can't imagine living over 30 years at that time with all of these, like the mystery of it, you know, the mystery of why these things happen, where those pieces were and, and starting to create your own narratives to help you sleep at night because, you know, wondering would be too painful. And that is an excerpt from an interview that I did with director Tiffany Xiong about her film, Sing Me a Lullaby, screening at the Toronto International Film Festival. For all things TIFF, www.tiff.net, T-I-F-F dot net. Hi, I'm Mayor John Tory, and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm old enough to remember when they called it U of T Radio. Up next, Daniel Garber talks with Scotty Bowers and Matt Turnauer about Scotty and the secret history of Hollywood. Hi, this is Daniel Garber, the movies for CultureMining.com and CIUT 89.5 FM. It's in the 1950s, Scotty Bowers, a former Marine, is working as a gas jockey on Hollywood Boulevard who stumbles on an untapped market. Sex with the stars. They wanted young men and they were willing to pay for it. 20 bucks a pop. Soon, he was turning tricks, invited into the mansions of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Charles Lawton, George Cooker, Lana Turner, and Cary Grant. But Scotty was also discreet and kept Hollywood secrets safe from the gossip rags. Until the stars were long gone, then wrote it all down in a tell-all book. Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood is a new feature documentary which had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. Directed by noted documentary filmmaker Matt Turnauer, it probes Scotty's history and tells the secrets and brings it up to date to the present day. Uh, in L.A., and I'm very pleased to have uh, Matt Turnauer and the legendary Scotty Bowers himself here to tell us more about the secret history of Hollywood. Hi, Matt. Hi. Hi, Scotty. Hi. I'm so happy you could, uh, I could meet you here. So, Scotty, I know you've told this story many times. I wonder if you could tell me about the first time at the gas station. The first time I fixed someone up? Yes. The first time was after I'd been there just a couple of days and I had buddies hanging around who didn't have a dime, you know. And I remember a, a guy that I knew came and said, Jesus, he's a nice looking guy, I'd love to take him out to dinner. And of course, what through my mind right away, fuck dinner, he doesn't have a dime. Why don't you just give him 20 bucks and get with him? That's what you really want to do anyhow. <laughs> Why fool around with a dinner <laughs> and drinks? Get right to the point. And Eventually, you began to use the station itself as a place to for you and your friends to turn tricks. Eventually, within a day or two. Within a day or two. Oh, okay. Of that, I was doing it right away. Where? At the station. In the in the washroom? No. Uh, <clears throat> in the washroom, a, oddly enough, a, fr a friend of mine had a big house trailer. It entered from the center with two king-size beds at each end with a separation. And he said to me, he gave me $50 a month to park it up in the back lot under a tree, and you could hardly see it, even though it was a big trailer. 
And uh, he said, go ahead and use it whenever you want to do it. I had that thing going day and night. For I, how I, many years? Um, that trailer was there for about five years. And no because one ever? He, he was always out on location. Every time he'd come back from location and think we're going to make a little trip, Naturally, the studio has another picture going, and they take the same crew out. <laughs> so he was always gone and never using the trailer. Oh, so it's like a movie trailer. No, it wasn't a movie trailer, but he was from the studio and, and went. This was his own personal trailer. So I'm, I'm curious, like, were you, was the owner of the gas station in the know about what was going uh, on? It was a, a company station, and the, the guy that ran it, his name was Bill Booth. And he lived way out in Inglewood with a wife and two kids. So when he left the station at night, he went out never to return. <clears throat> oh, so this was uh, after closing? Yeah. Uh -huh. No, no, I could stay open as long as I wanted. Oh, okay. Meaning I could keep it open till 2 in the morning, midnight, 1 o'clock, depending how, if there's any business, you know. And gas, remember, gas is only 25 cents a gallon. And half the people can't have bought a dollar for the gas. Uh -huh. So, you know. So they're happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were spending $20 on something else, though. So. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. So, uh, Matt, why was secrecy so important in this era? Uh, people had to live double lives then. I mean, it's so hard now in era, an era of equality, marriage equality in so many places, uh, to remember that... Um, being gay was uh, considered to be shameful, if not illegal, uh, in the whole world, really. Uh, Hollywood being no exception. I, I, Hollywood's always been a permissive and liberal place, but the official codes of Hollywood after the war were all about decency and uh, normalcy, and normalcy at the time meant heterosexuality. Uh, but the stars and the people who ran the town and uh, the people that made the town go had lives like everyone else, and Scotty was the facilitator of people living authentic lives. In addition, as Scotty tells very well in the film, uh, explores the Vice Squad in L.A. We all know this from movies like L.A. Confidential. The Vice Squad was very, very uh, uh, pernicious and uh, on the make. It was a money-making operation. It was a money-making. Very corrupt. For, for years after the war, they were red-hot in Hollywood. On the take. They had Vice Squad that went from bar to bar, up and down the street, two guys busted people for pissing in the alley and things like that, you know, just for indecent exposure, and I say, what do you mean indecent? That's resisting arrest. They got them on two charges already, didn't do a thing. Huh. I mean, you said they used to raid parties and take... Yeah, but uh, they always try to pick someone who had money or the type of job that they would lose immediately. Some mad little queen that said, oh, I'd love to go to jail. They didn't fool with him. They always arrested a teacher or someone that had... Or someone who would be embarrassed. Someone whose job would be lost quickly. Mm. And, and they, they paid off. Huh. And in those days... Harry Weiss was one of the main attorneys, and Harry would, uh, every party he had would do judges and their wives. So he would get his cases before a judge he knew. And then he would go down, and he would get his boys, where he always had a dozen boys, to go out in the hallway and meet the arresting officers and hand them $500 a piece, and they'd disappear. The judge, judges say, where are the arresting officers? Or they were busy doing something, case dismissed. He'd have 10 cases dismissed in an hour that way. It's brilliant. That's right. So, because homosexuality was basically illegal. And well, it was, but so many people had jobs that really was illegal. But right. I mean, they would lose their job in a minute. Right. Because so, of that. So, because that was legal and so was the sex trade. Right. Did that make you or people working this kind of work easy to 
flow and interact with people who are quite famous because it, they both are holding a it secret. It does because they can't go out and cruise, right? Right. People know who they are. So therefore, everyone I saw had to be someone that would come through somebody like me because of that. And and when I fixed them up with people, I fixed them up with... when I fi- Even the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, I never ever told who they were. <laughs> I would bring them in from the Pacific Palisades into the Beverly Hills Hotel bungalow, take guys to see them, and even my best friends, I would never mention who they were because you tell one person, then the word's around. Wow. Um, <laughs> I understand Rock Hudson worked before well, Rock, he worked. Rock didn't have a dime. He was living in North Hollywood. They just bought a brand new 1947 Chevrolet, had an Irish setter dog, and the guy he lived with worked in a drive-in, a car hop, and, and, and Rock didn't have a dime. And I said, look, I'm, I fixed him up with Cary Grant, Randolph Scott. I fixed him up with people he later worked with <laughs> for 20 bucks. <laughs> well, one of the hardest things when about doing a documentary is you have to find period footage, photos, images, stills. Mm-hmm. How'd you find all the sex stuff? Because, uh, because he's on the ball, that's how you found it. Thank you. Um, well, actually, we found uh, Scotty is not a, a saver of personal material, so uh, we actually had to find his trunk, uh, which was several feet into one of his many storage units. And, oh, is uh, that what the trunk was? Yeah, yeah exactly. Movie. Oh. Yeah. And so we found a lot of photos of the gas station boys in right. the trunk, but Scotty had forgotten about them, number one. Uh, turns out Scotty did a lot of erotic uh, posing in the 50s, which you also really have For basically... George Quaintance, you mean? Yeah, George Quaintance and other leading photographer, underground photographers at the time. Those things kind of burbled up on the internet, um, and people would say, hey, this looks like Scotty, and would send it in. So we, we've happened upon a lot of stuff. And then a lot of the erotic photography and film that's uh, in the movie comes from archives of these kind of special, um, secret, surreptitious uh, porn shoots that happened in what now seems like the antediluvian age. Right. But they have a certain look, and, and we film found loops. we found one Super Eight uh, uh, nude movie with Scotty in it, which was pretty special. <laughs> no, I saw that. What was funny when I think of all the people. When I was at their house or something, they took pictures of me. What became of all those pictures? I'd like they to died, know. the pictures were thrown away, that was it. You know, yeah, I'd like to know where they are. <laughs> one of the totally unexpected things, I love the movie, um, one of the most uh, unexpected things were there are all these wild animals crawling around your place, yeah, up well, on the deck. Well, yeah, because when little skunks come, I feed them, and they bring back their little kids, and I feed them, and then the raccoons come and meet me at the cars I drive up and <laughs> wonder where their food is. <laughs> there was a, there were uh, raccoons, and uh, did you ever get coyotes? Or? Yeah, yeah, remember there was one picture of the coyote? Yeah. There. The coyotes, they're very, very shy coyotes, you know. And how did you photograph? Did you set up a like a motion-activated camera? Or we just or? sat. No, we sat over a little distance away, on a step, and waited for them to come. And all of a sudden, then Jonas took the picture. There they are now. Boom, boom. You know. Yeah. Scotty, uh, not afraid of a skunk. It made me not afraid of a skunk, too. I think that's a, the perfect metaphor animal for Scotty. It's like everyone reviles skunks, but Scotty actually welcomes them in. Yeah. <laughs> well, one got in my house and spent two days in my house. Inside? Oh, inside. They didn't, they didn't, well, my house they didn't is blow. full of junk. No, no. And, and two days I get here. And one morning I get up, about a third morning, I get up and she's in the kitchen eating cat food. 
So I opened the door and had her come out the front door, you know. When Kenneth Anger's book came out, it was banned at first, and they were talking about some of the same people that are in uh, your book. Did you ever have trouble publishing your book? Did they were you threatened with lawsuits or anything? No, no one ever, no one ever said a thing actually, and uh, the book got published very quickly with the starting of Gore Dow and then uh, David Kuhn, who was there last night. And uh, what what happened was Gore called me. Gore had a copy of, pep, of the book, like it would not more or less in the book form, and before it was made a book. And Gore called and said, I've got a publisher coming for, for uh, lunch. He said, I gave them the book yesterday and told them to read it and come to lunch tomorrow, which means you've got to read it, right? And uh, I went over, and the guy said, I do everything online, and this shouldn't be online, but I'm taking it back to New York with me tonight and giving it to David Kuhn, who's a very sharp, on-the-ball guy, and do the same thing that Gore did with me, take and read it and come to lunch tomorrow. And did, and he called the next day and flew out here to the following day. And when they do that, you know the book is on its way because he wouldn't leave New York and fly out if it weren't. So that went zoom zoom. <laughs> you talk about, uh, in the film, you talk about F, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who was, who a, was a cross-dresser. Drag, a drag queen. Did, he was a drag queen. Did he also have sex uh, with any... I mean, do you know anyone who had sex with him? He always had a young, good-looking FBI agent with him, a young guy, he was straight. And when I first met him was in La Jolla at a doctor friend of mine who was also a friend of his. And so I'm down there. He dresses like a woman, and my doctor friend dresses like a woman. So the FBI guy and myself are the two guys at the dinner table. So, and you met him in oh, drag? Yeah. Well, I spent, spent the weekend with him. Spent the weekend with him. Okay, because he was the in charge of this huge crackdown that's, on gays that's in, right. In, that's right. in Hollywood. That's right. Yeah. See, this is, and this, a lot of people did this thing. It's like a fucking cop arresting people, and the fucking cop is gay. You know, but this is the way people are. <clears throat> is there anyone who you still, you don't have to tell it to me, but is yeah. there anyone who you still hold a secret on that you don't want to reveal? Uh, or did you tell everything in the book? No, I, I could have made the book that thick, but... People don't like big, thick books. Right, right. Small. But is there anyone just because you you don't want to tell people about, or is it's it's so long ago it doesn't matter? Well, no. There there's several people who are still living. Right. You know, like uh, I was going to put Betty White in there, and then maybe she was you know in love with Alan Ludden. Right. And Alan was gay, even though he'd been married before. Right. And I remember one time I'm out at the house with Alan, and we heard Betty come, so we. We're coming out of the bedroom, and she said, "What's Scotty doing here?" And he said, "He came to look at the trees." Says, "You know, we don't have any trees in the bedroom." <laughs> <laughs> so Betty knew about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, probably. But, but that, one little thing: there's there's several people who are living. Right. That I didn't mention many because they're still living and right. they're friends. You know. Right. No, that, that's fair. That's fair. This is such a. I, I mean, I could I could talk to you all day. It's such a great thing, but. Uh, uh, I just want to say thanks so much uh, for talking with me. It's an amazing movie. So uh, wonderful talking with you. Matt Turnauer and Scotty Bauer, thank you so much. Uh, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood had its world premiere at TIFF and is opening soon in 
Toronto. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, thank you. I, we, no. Scotty got a standing and ovation. I like the way you night, talk, but. too. Clear <laughs> no, some people fluff their words. You don't, but you talk clear and distinct. You pick up on it completely. That's the way you were making an announcement from the beginning. Thank you so much. This is Daniel Garber, the movies each Friday morning on CIUT 89.5 FM and on my website, culturalmining.com. <laughs> Hi, this is Carol Pope on CIUT 89.5 FM. Hi, this is Donna G from The More the Merrier. Come join my night owls and early birds Wednesday mornings, 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. And happy tiffing. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is Daniel Garber, the movies on culturalmining.com and CIUT 89.5 FM and on Twitter at Cultural Mining. I'm Mark Tara from the syndicated radio show and number one LGBT podcast, Rainbow Country, which can be heard right here on CIUT Tuesdays, 11 p.m. Don't forget, we will be back on Wednesday at 2 p.m. Taking us out, how about some Lady Gaga? <laughs> <laughs>